Hello. Hello. And welcome to another episode of Tacos and Tequila. I'm Peyton. I'm Sydney. And I dug down deep into my list of notorious cases again today uh, for the episode that we will be covering for everyone. <laughs> Woo! I know uh, the last episode I did was that Warwick slasher, and you're talking. You mentioned like one of your facts said was that it was like the most notorious case in Rhode Island. Yes. I actually went through and read an article <laughs> like a month ago about the most notorious cases in each state. No. Nice. And I added a bunch to the list to cover. And so today we'll be visiting one of those other cases. I'm excited to hear more about what you found in your <laughs> rabbit hole because Peyton is still in the rabbit hole. Don't let her fool you. She went down it and she's still stuck in it. Okay. Yes, uh, I read a book, which I will reference in a little bit for everyone. It is like, um, it's known as like historical fiction because there are obviously like conversations and like it's like a narrative that obviously we don't know how every conversation went over 100 years ago in this case, but everything in the book is based off of all like historical documents. Uh, newspaper clippings like law filings and like court filings everything they even had like the sheriff's file like it's kind of wild yeah so I have a lot of fun facts for us today and I definitely went a little crazy (laughs) crazy is good sometimes that's true (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well, Sid, do you have anything else to add before we, I guess, hop right into it? I don't. Awesome. In 1920, a tragedy hit a small prairie town in Turtle Lake, North Dakota, where it shook the entire community. This tragedy made headlines all across the United States and is known as the most infamous case in the state still today. Today we are discussing the Wolf family murders. The Wolf family lived on a farm just north of Turtle Lake, North Dakota. If you are like me, you probably have no sense of direction in the state of North Dakota because I sure as hell don't. Uh, So I looked it up. (laughs) Turtle Lake is still there and it's about a halfway mark between Bismarck and Minot, I did look it up. That is how everything told me to say it. Minot. <laughs> so it's actually pretty central to the state. It's like almost smack dab in the middle, maybe just like a little west of the center. Jacob Wolf at the time was 41 years old. He came to the U.S. in 1902 from Germany and about a year later settled down in North Dakota where he started a homestead of his own. His wife, Beta Bossert, now Beta Wolf, was around 35 at the time and she also came to North Dakota in 1903 with her family not long after Jacob Wolf had settled in the area from a German village in Ukraine. 
Only a couple years later, the two were married. So just to kind of paint a picture, the area here in North Dakota was extremely like German Russian settlement area. Uh, the people that had settled here all owned like farmland and homesteads in like Russian areas or territories and lived in their own German villages. A lot of people even spoke German at the time in the area still. They might know both, but they would often speak German at home. And on church services on Sundays would also be in German. So it was like a very heavy German-Russian area. That's, sorry, I was just going to say that's pretty interesting like that they come, because, okay, so like if you immigrate to the States from Europe, they would go into New York. Yes. And then the fact that they made it all the way to the Dakotas, I guess it's like interesting, like how they discovered that area and that they all ended up there or like a big chunk of them. It's so wild to me because like when I read this book, a lot of people who settled in the area, their families knew each other. Like they would say like back in the old country. So like they came from the same regions too. And they all settled over here um, in this North Dakota area. I'm guessing it has a lot to do with the conditions in North Dakota being very similar to like how they were, where they were living. So one family ended up there and then probably was like, hey, when you guys get over, come (laughs) come over to North Dakota. This is where you want to be. Yeah, that's kind of what I I picture uh, (laughs) because, I mean, they all, like I said, they all came from like farmlands in like Russia and then lived in like prairie farmlands here in the U.S. Makes sense. Which was just, like, super interesting to me, too. That's why I had to include it. (laughs) So, together, Jacob and his wife, Beta, they would have six children together. And all girls. (laughs) Bertha was the oldest at 12. Next was Maria at 9. Edna at 7. Lydia at 5. Martha at 3. And the baby, Emma, was about 9 months old. On this particular day in April of 1920, it was a nice spring day where many people were out plowing and seeding to prep for the summer. John Kraft, a neighbor of the Wolf family from down the road, had actually agreed to let Jacob use his drill press. I'm going to use as little farming verbiage as possible, everyone, (laughs) because I'm not knowledgeable and anything I include, I probably also googled so I understood what it was but basically Jacob Wolf was trying to use this extra drill press and he already owned one and the purpose was to catch up on the seating in their farm or their plots of land for the spring but like because it's springtime they're all seeding everything and plowing everything And he was a little further behind schedule than he was hoping. Uh, They actually, the Wolf family had hired some help from a neighboring family. And it was one of their sons. His name was Jacob Hofer. Uh, They called him Jake. I'll try and refer to him as Jake throughout this too. And they said they used that as like a differentiator (laughs) between big Jacob Wolf and like little Jacob Hofer. (laughs) 
Um, but Jacob was, Jake was only 13 at the time. He was really helping out on the wolf farm and enjoyed, enjoyed learning from a farmer like Mr. Wolf, whose farm had really grown to include several hundred acres, which was much more than like many of the other farms around. So he was pretty successful. And so originally the plan was Jacob Wolf would want run one drill press. Jake Hofer would run the other and that would allow them to catch up. Unfortunately, John, who was heading out to do more work in his fields on Saturday, the 24th, noticed the drill press out at the property he had left it at and like exactly where he left it for Jacob Wolf to come pick up. He felt really strangely about this since Jacob had informed him that he would pick it up first thing Thursday afternoon. Again, it's now Saturday. So John tried to put it out of his mind and he assumed like, oh, maybe the wolves fell behind. And he was feeling like really puzzled. He like really could not get it out of his head. He was out plowing his own fields. And finally around 1130 that morning, his curiosity really got the best of him. He headed back towards his home and he basically told his wife what was bothering him. He had told her that he also saw yesterday one of Jacob's horses wandering the yard and eating out of the wagon box, which would be strange in itself. But then this that morning when he had gone to town and back and past the wolf property, he had seen the horses still there, still in their harnesses that he saw them wearing the day before and eating from the haystack. Mind you, they would usually be like, put away right not just like wandering their yard let alone with a harness on like they were out doing work and got interrupted and came back or something so his wife really agreed that didn't seem quite usual to the wolf family so they decided to call them make sure everything was okay just a reminder like it is 1920 and they're living on the prairies in north dakota it is like a really hard prairie life they do have like a town doctor and stuff. And at this point, their city that they are close to, Turtle Lake, is considered an actual town by now. But like the families still live on farms outside of town. <laughs> so they figured maybe someone had gotten sick or they needed some help. They weren't sure, but they called the house and no one answered. So they decided to drive by and check on them in person. When they first arrived, John's wife had commented how the clothes were out on the clothesline, and that was like a good sign, thinking, you know, Mrs. Wolf and the girls had gotten up early and gotten a head start on the day to do their daily washing or weekly washing. At that time, obviously, reminder, <laughs> no, like, washer and dryer, so they're washing and hanging out on the clothesline to dry, and that kind of stuff was done on every, like, the same day. So you... Whereas, like, I might throw my clothes in the dryer now and leave them in the dryer for a day, re-dry, and then put them in a basket for a day before I put them away. That's, like, not how a it was day. done. I just leave it in the dryer and then keep re-drying it until I wear it half the time, I feel like. <laughs> Honestly, kind of same. I just pulled my clothes out of the dryer yesterday, and hopefully I'll get half this basket put away today. My dad's going to be so time. mad when he listens because this is not how he raised me to do it. And I know, Dad, I am sorry. <laughs> if I was living in these times, my clothes would be hanging on the the dryer outside for weeks at a time. 
Same. It's like bird <laughs> shit all over them. I'd have to rewash them again. I'd be so pissed. Same. <laughs> but so like that was like pretty normal to see out there because you know you do like a wash day once or twice a week and it was like a big task but John actually told his wife he had seen those clothes out in the clothesline the night before when he had seen that horse and he was coming back from chores the day before so again huge red flag to John Kraft's wife because she's like that is not normal (laughs) And they saw several horses wandering the yard, again, in full harnesses and chickens roaming in search of food. What John Craft would stumble upon could really only be described as complete horror. At first, there was no one, like, no answer when he called. He tried knocking on the door and yelling with no response. He went even around to the back door of the house. And still nothing, but finally when he went to go open the door and yelled in again, he heard a baby crying. So he decided to continue in the house, and he saw the kitchen table, which looked like the family had been in the middle of a meal. There were, like, plates and half-eaten food on their plates. But the table wasn't in its usual space or, like, spot. It looked like it had been moved and kind of the chairs were disheveled. And then his eyes went to the floor and he saw blood with several long streaks leading to the cellar door in the floor. So immediately John went to the back room where the baby was, wrapped her in a blanket and took her outside to his wife. She had clearly been left alone for quite some time. She was extremely soiled and seemed very upset and hungry. While outside with his wife and the baby, he heard pigs in the cow shed and it was like attached to the barn on the property. He looked that way and he noticed there was blood on the ground there too. Almost like another trail leading into the cow shed. So obviously concerned, John went to look and this is where he found Jacob Wolf, the father of the family, covered in hay and dead along with two of his daughters underneath his body, also covered in hay. Later, it was determined it would be Edna and Maria with him, the ones who were seven and nine. At this point, John knew he had to go back in and look in the house, too, even though he didn't really want to, understandable. And so he went inside and peered into the cellar of the home. It was super dark, but he could make out five more bodies. These bodies would include Jacob's wife, their three other daughters, and the boy they hired, Jacob Hofer. There was only one surviving member of the family found, and that was the baby Emma Wolf, who was only nine months at the time. John Kraft immediately reached out to authorities to investigate this crime. So, kind of the steps following, I'm just going to, like, preface this for everyone, uh, I got a lot of this information from the book I read. It's called The Murdered Family. It's by Vernon Keel. Like I said, it's historical fiction. um, And he went through and basically did a great job on research. He's from North Dakota. He was like a historian prior to writing the book and a journalist. And a lot of this I'm going to question and sound like, 
put questions out there for everyone because that's kind of what I did while I was reading it. But I just want also everyone to understand this was a hundred years ago. <laughs> so like now we might have cell phones or, you know, even just like normal phones where everyone could easily call. You, everyone has a number where you can track them basically at any time. That really wasn't the case back then, obviously. <laughs> and because the town was just incorporated and was like just officially became a town not many years before, their like police structure was like <laughs> very lacking. <laughs> they had one sheriff or one policeman in town. That was it. So John Kraft immediately decided he needed to like reach out to authorities, but he really didn't know the best route to go. Uh, first, he actually decided on going to the newspaper office, which to me, I was like, what the fuck? Uh, why are you going to the newspaper office at first? But like his whole point was that the editor would know who like would need to be contacted and would effectively like gather and reach everyone and then the next steps could be determined further which was true so he determined first they wanted to contact their lo local policeman his name was jim lynch and the local doctor jim lynch then got the county sheriff involved as well since it was technically a crime outside of the city limits of turtle lake and it would need to be investigated by the county sheriff. And it was also the county coroner that had to be called because he would have to uh, do his investigation as well. They then decided to have the phone operator calling everyone on the local exchange to start relaying a message to all. And this is like a part where I was really flabbergasted. But basically, the message that they sent out was something about, like, it being an emergency and notifying everyone that the Wolf family was murdered. And the murderers were still on the loose, so lock your doors and be on the lookout for strangers. To me, I heard that, and I'm like, well, now you're just causing panic. But we get that now with, like, those text messages. Yeah, I guess that's true. And I think it is now, die, but like but... 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it wasn't like that. I guess. So I guess like that's kind of where I go to. I did think it was really weird. Um, and it de definitely caused like mass panic in the area. Uh, but I guess I can see where they're coming from because like we'll get to in a little bit. But like, I mean, everyone in this small area was on the lookout. And the news, like, really spread, like, wildfire, not just from the Turtle Lake area, but then it slowly started reaching all the major cities as well. Like, even Bismarck police chief got involved, and he was, like, a very big player in this investigation, too. Well, and if they only have, I guess, I don't know if this is the way that they were looking at it. They probably were concerned for everyone's safety. But if you only have one sheriff or, like, one officer to do your duties and your community you kind of got to get the whole public involved to get everybody's <laughs> eyes out there searching and figuring out what's going on like yeah you want to make sure you know lock your doors stay safe but I'm sure all the men were out trying to figure out who the killer was while the women were at home with the children yes and so also uh you know to also put it in perspective they didn't know if someone was still on loose or what. They just knew that it was only the family there. And so they assumed that 
I mean, at first they're like, no one in our small community could do this. Like, it's got to be a stranger. Who knows if they're still on the loose? Like, they don't know if they're in the area. They don't know if they've left and they're in other cities in North Dakota now. So the news spread very quickly so everyone could be on the lookout for strange behavior. Which I'm sure could have potentially, like, saved a lot of lives, too. So I'll give them that. (laughs) Several cars of men then loaded up in the town and headed out towards the Wolf family farm. Immediately, the group who arrived were warned not to touch anything, so that was good. Uh, But they all walked the property to ensure no one could be saved. That was a big reason the doctor wanted to get out there right away. He wanted to make sure that, like, no one was still alive and could actually be saved. After the men left the house, the deputy on site locked the doors until the sheriff and state's attorney were to arrive and ensure no one would enter the property or mess up with the crime scene inside. Over the next day or two, many neighbors, likely hundreds of people, would wander the property, some observing the bodies in the cow shed before they were even moved. These people assisted in looking for clues or evidence on the property with the law enforcement. They helped take care of the livestock on the farm for the Wolf family, and they answered inquest questions not only from the coroner's inquest, but from the police officers on scene. This also included a flash photographer who was brought in to photograph the bodies and the crime scenes before they moved. I was really shocked and impressed. I don't know if you noticed this, but there were like a lot of pictures you could find on this story. And from it being more than 100 years ago, I was like, I was shook. (laughs) Like, I did not expect that. And so I wanted to include that because I guess that's like probably a big part of why they actually had someone like photographer like a photographer there tracking everything. Makes sense. It's definitely interesting though cuz I was thinking that like why is there so many pictures when we have cases that we've covered that were like within the past 30 <laughs> years and we can't find any pictures. So yeah. it's super crazy that that there's I mean a decent amount out there which you oh, guys I agree. see too. Uh They did say, just as, like, a note in that book, that a lot of the pictures were too graphic to include anywhere. So, like, they were in, like, the newspaper police chief or, like, police files, but they probably were never published anywhere, and I think that's fair. Uh, I don't think anyone wanted to see crime scene photos. So, at least, you know, it's different times nowadays, so. They're not Uh, Googling them like I do on the weekends. Yes. (laughs) So it was quickly ruled out whether this was a robbery or a murder-suicide. For the robbery aspect, nothing seemed to be touched from the home or taken. And there was even still like a small safe in Mr. and Mrs. Wolf's bedroom that had not been taken or broken into. When investigators opened it, there was $100 in cash and hundreds of dollars of certificates and deposits. I mean, the $100 in cash alone is like about $1,700 nowadays. So you would definitely think if someone was in there for a robbery, they would have taken the money. 
Suicide was ruled out because it did not appear the wounds to Jacob were self-inflicted. So there was obviously the thought of being a murder-suicide where Jacob Wolf would have killed his whole family and then himself. He had two shotgun wounds, according to the coroner. One was through his back at long range and the second um, on his front side in short distance. His body was also dragged and moved into the shed. Uh, I did read an article or part of the book where it got really graphic on the injuries from the victims from the coroner's report. Uh, I'll just briefly go over them. I'm not going to go into detail like he did. But for the other victims, Mrs. Wolf was shot in the back at close range, which was her one and only wound. Bertha, the oldest daughter, was shot in the face in close range, and a second blow had been done with a hatchet. Martha, nine, was shot in the back of the head by the left ear. Edna, seven, was shot in the back of the head at close range. Lydia, five, was shot in the back of the left ear and also suffered a second blow from the hatchet. Martha, who was three, was the only one shot, not shot with the shotgun, and she died from a massive blow to her face with the blunt side of the hatchet. And finally, the hired boy, Jacob, 13, was shot in the back of the neck and severed his jugular immediately. According to almost everyone questioned at the time, Jacob Wolf was very well-liked and well-respected in the community. I mean, I told you that I <laughs> took so many notes reading that book. I probably highlighted at least 15 people in, like, the parts where they were interviewing who had nothing but great things to say about him. And I did that because Aww. I wanted to, like, keep it in my memory. I mean, they were regular churchgoers. They were involved in their community. And really, for the most part, no one could think of anyone who would really do such a terrible thing. The girls were young, and they were always friendly to everyone in town. Beta Wolf, the wife, she had a lot of family and close friends in the area. And Jacob, like I said, was very well-liked and well-respected. He was pretty successful, and he was always, like, helping his neighbors and close with them. On April 28, 1920, just six days after the bodies were determined to have, the victims were determined to have died, the Wolf family was laid to rest where hundreds showed up to pay their respects. Sid, did you see the picture of the funeral? Or, like, any of pictures of it with, like, caskets laid out? Yes. That was, like, one of the first pictures that came up when I searched. And yes. Like, I feel like it's <laughs> definitely one of the most popular photos that is, comes along with this family, unfortunately. But, yes, all the caskets just laid out on the street. Yeah, and so many people there. They yes. said that they had multiple police uh, and law enforcement from other areas in coming in to help direct traffic even. There were reporters from all over the state. There were family members and friends from not only all across North Dakota, but in neighboring uh, states as well. It was, it was like really impressive. Uh, and again, that just goes to show how well like this family was. 
the family grave site is still in the local cemetery. It's marked with a monument of stone. And it just says their last name, Wolf, and a German line that translates to the murdered family. The whole family, including the hired boy Jacob, was buried in one massive grave. I mean, this was a national news headline. Story, this story spread like a wildfire. It literally made the... <laughs> It literally made the Bismarck Tribune, which is a major city, I mean, in today's time, maybe an hour drive, so multiple hours away, at 4.30 p.m. for a a revised Saturday edition, literally the day the bodies were found. Like, same day, was out in the newspapers. Uh, they want crazy. Yes. So crazy. <laughs> and they it's wanted so- to keep everyone updated about everything, like we said, to avoid that panic. But like personally kind of thought like way too much information was being posted True. in the papers. <laughs> but uh, then this is just like, I mean, sorry, this is just like, you know, cases today where we obviously have more cases that blow up and like you hear a lot about you know the murders or different things that are taking place in today but there's always those random cases that blow up and you hear way too much about for no reason so it was like this was the case of that time like that got all the attention for what reason there was probably yeah. other stuff going on I 100% agree and it's like almost like a pet peeve of mine when investigation is underway and you see like way too inf- much information being like shared in the press mm-hmm because, like, I don't think it's really beneficial when the kid, you don't know what's going on yet as an investigator to be sharing all this detail. They literally shared everything with their reporters. They did not hold back. Uh, the only thing they didn't include were names of suspects, but they literally implied in, like, press conferences that, like, they had suspects. And, like, you could gather information on who they would be based off of what the investigator said. Like, the coroner gave, gave a very in-depth report to the reporters on the bodies. Like, everyone looked sick, apparently, according to this book, after that happened. <laughs> because it was, like, way more detail than they were expecting. <laughs> Which, like, I think is also kind of normal today. Uh, but I just thought it was really interesting. They literally, I mean, we'll get into it later on, but... I'll I'll come back to this because I have something I want to add, but I don't want to <laughs> get there yet. <laughs> so it did not take police long to zero in on a suspect. It was another neighbor, Henry Lear. During the initial search of the property, the following items were found. They found uh, spent shotgun shell casings, a small bloody hatchet, <laughs> which appears to be the wolf's own hatchet from their property, bloody rags stuffed under the kitchen rug, and a pair of blood-soaked overalls wedged into the ceiling of the cellar by that cellar door. Uh, They would later determine that those overalls were Jacob Wolf's, used to probably soak up the blood. They also found a shotgun in a shallow lake or riverbed riverbed on the property with its stock removed 
from the barrels and no one could identify the gun as either one of the Wolf family's guns or anyone else's from the area. Henry Lair was arrested just two weeks after the crimes and he was immediately convicted. He would only serve five years of his life sentence before he died in prison and I will get to that eventually. (laughs) And it all kind of seems a bit abrupt. Like, he was immediately convicted. (laughs) And there are a lot of things about this that are really just that, very abrupt. However, like I said, Lair was almost immediately a suspect. He was on site with the hundreds of people the day the bodies were found and the following days as well. He actually initially told investigators that him and Jacob Wolf were neighbors and actually good friends. What he would include was that they did not like each other at all, and it was actually really well known in the area since Lair had moved there about four years prior. They actually often had issues of Lair's cattle wandering into Wolf's property, and Wolf would send his dogs after any cattle that came to feed on his land. And this sometimes caused damage to Henry Lair's cattle itself. Lair actually made it known to a lot of people, even while at the wolf farm and helping out after the bodies were found, that he had an issue with the wolf dogs. And he also made himself extremely suspicious by trying to spread false rumors of Jacob Wolf having an affair. He actually was doing this prior to the murders um, and was spreading rumors of Jacob Wolf having an affair with one of his wife's best friends in the area. Jacob Wolf was really good friends with her father as well, and she's about 10 years younger than him. Uh, so this was obviously like a big deal. <laughs> um, I think it would be a big deal now, but it was a big deal over a hundred years ago and uh a lot of people didn't believe the rumors because they knew the type of person jacob wolf was but the rumors were out there and even at the crime scene when lair was there he made comments to several people about how he heard jacob wolf was having this affair with this neighbor woman so like that's a red flag And then he even told people he knew that investigators thought he was a suspect, which I was like, why are you out there at the crime scene telling people this? They're going to investigate, sir. (laughs) So he was taken into custody around 10 p.m. on a Thursday night. It was like, I think, the following night after the funeral. And he wrote an affidavit of his events starting from the day before the murders through, you know, the Saturday after when the bodies were found. This would later contradict a lot of the neighbors' affidavits and formal statements that they gave. He had said he spoke to several people and saw several people the day of the crime who later stated in their statements they never saw Henry. Henry would later, about a week later, produce a written confession to investigators, which was sufficient in sealing his fate. The details were a bit shaky, but this is supposedly how the events occurred. Henry Lair and Jacob Wolf had an issue recently where one of Wolf's dogs attacked and bit a cow that Lair had on his property. 
Henry showed up to the Wolf property to confront him on the issue, but things escalated very quickly, and Jacob Wolf demanded that Henry leave. He refused, so Jacob loaded two shells into a shotgun to tell him that he was serious and make sure that he knew he had to get off his property. At this point, Henry, instead of leaving, decided to try to wrestle the gun from Jacob, eventually causing both shells to fire, one hitting and killing Jacob's wife, Beta, and the other one hitting and killing the 13-year-old chore boy, Jake. Jacob supposedly at this point made a run for it, which is also a red flag to my story here, uh, where he shot, where Henry then shot him in the back in the yard. And then he went into the shed and killed two of the little girls who ran in there to hide when Jacob also made a run for it. Then he went back into the house where the remaining children were and killed the rest of them. The reason he said he left the baby alive was because that she was sleeping supposedly through all of this in the back room. He did not hear her and did not go in the room so that she was in, so he didn't see her. Henry signed the confession, told the attorney he pled guilty, and was seen in front of a judge that night, waiving his rights to an attorney and a jury trial, where he was immediately sentenced to life in the state penitentiary. So when I said it was like an immediate sentencing it really was (laughs) but are the events that occurred the truth now Sid we talked about this before we started recording you know when I was doing research on the case and like looking at articles I could get like a little bit of tidbits here and there about potentially you know Henry Lair claiming his innocence and all this stuff but I really didn't have a lot of conspiracy theories or any proof to like go off of this exactly which is why I was really excited to hear that you run a book because I was hoping this is one of the things I was hoping you would get more information on because definitely from what I read you know there's the like thoughts and like little tidbits that of these conspiracies and these theories of what might have happened but they don't tell you enough it's like Okay, the story. Like, oh, this okay. This 100% why I read the book. I wanted all the conspiracy theories. And I got them. I'm so excited <laughs> so, to hear. So, to this day, there are lots of questions on what happened to the Wolf family. And many believe Henry Laird did not commit this crime. Immediately, Henry claimed he was forced into signing the confession. And he continuously maintained his innocence. He claims he did actually sign under duress, and after he was beaten by officers, I didn't go in depth, but I did see, like, what, according to his attorneys, he had said happened to him. It wasn't, like, beaten, beaten, but he did say he was hit upside the head a few times, and he was in the room being interrogated with, like, four different investigators. Uh, So I, I could see that that would be terrifying. These officers told Henry after he was taken into custody that there was actually an angry mob waiting to lynch him the second they released him. Uh, They said they were all outside. They all knew he was guilty and he should agree to sign the affidavit and his confession. And the safest place for him would be in prison where he could kind of lie low until things died down. And once there, he would be able to change his plea and have his jury trial. 
Henry happily agreed. He, well, he didn't happily agree, (laughs) but according to him, he agreed thinking it was the best thing for his safety and for fear of his life. Uh, Both the angry mob, mob who was supposedly outside wanting to see him hung and the officers who beat him. Unfortunately, Henry would never have the opportunity to officially change his plea. After he was sentenced, he did obtain attorneys, uh, and his family had found some very, you know, two very good attorneys to take on his case. And they basically appealed for a change of plea and for a trial by jury to answer all the holes in the story that did not seem to add up. For one thing, the investigators continuously from the beginning maintained that one person could not have committed this crime themselves. Uh, One big reason is that a lot of these, all these victims that had the gunshot wounds, they were shotguns. Sydney, do you know anything about like loading and unloading shotguns? I mean, doesn't it take like a minute? Like, a, a yes. to, like, like, it's not so, an easy task. So, basically, just to, like, get an idea, you have to open the barrels, put the shotgun shells in, close it, cock it, shoot, right? After you shoot, then you have to open it, empty mm-hmm. those shells, and then reload. So, it's not like you have all these bullets and a gun that you can just shoot off continuously. Yes, yes. I was like, I knew that there was, like, a process behind it. Like, it's going to take you, like, 20 seconds or something to get going. Exactly. So, you know, definitely was interesting. Uh, The attorneys argued, basically, they had several points in their appeals and their arguments. But one of them was, like, obviously the duress and the potential of, like, being beaten by investigators and, like, all this false information he was fed. Another one was all this, like, evidence that pointed to other people being involved. Um, Basically, the attorneys, they did not argue that Lair was innocent on their appeals. That was not the route that they went. They pointed out that there were, like, so many holes in the story that it didn't seem realistic. It didn't seem to add up. And it didn't match what investigators had said happened originally in their theories. So they really just wanted to get Henry his day in court, which is fair. That's, we're allowed that (laughs) in the United States. But the judge who sentenced him, that was the first appeal to him, and the motion was denied. So then it went to the state Supreme Court, where the motion was also denied. The justices voted in a unanimous decision, but they're, Decisions still left many unanswered questions. Even in, like, their written decision, they kind of agreed it would be better off to have answers from, like, a trial by jury, but then they all voted against it. So it was kind of weird. Also, there's a lot of pressure on the investigators to get things done quickly and ensure justice was served. Within the year, there were several major political elections in the region and the state, which affected a lot of the key players here. Obviously, like the lower level police officer, even like the county sheriff weren't involved in that. But like the head investigator from Bismarck who was involved actually became pretty famous across the U.S. from helping solve this case. He traveled all across the Midwest, even to New York, to give speeches to law enforcement about this case. 
and being like it being solved. The governor was involved with like offering a reward, the state's attorney general, the local attorney general. Like, I mean, there were many levels that they went on to be, you know, state representatives, state senators. The judge who accepted Lair's appeal and or accepted his guilty plea and sentenced him and then who denied the first motion. Actually, within a year of this case and the final appeal being settled, was elected to re- as a replacement judge on the state Supreme Court. So, I mean, there were a lot of major politically involved players. And every time it seemed like something new was coming up, even like there was a new attorney general who was elected and doing all this investigations. After Lair's conviction, after the appeals, everything. So, like, it should have been a done deal, and there were talks and rumors that they planned on making more arrests separate of, like, the county sheriff's investigation because they had found more information. And then nothing ever came of that because within six months, he was (laughs) voted uh, out of office. They recalled him and voted him out of office. So, like... It was really wild because there was a lot of, like, political stuff going on. And it's a strong belief that this caused investigators to really hone in on someone and try to get this wrapped up as quickly as possible. Um, Wow. I know. (laughs) Wow. I don't like that. The book covered a lot of the political things that were going on and, like, what ended up happening. Uh, it's really hard to follow sometimes because it's not like Democratic and Republican parties. There were like a bunch of different parties that I had never even heard of. <laughs> and they use all these dumb big words probably that don't make sense. Yeah, and they had like a group they were called the League and like they had this nonpartisan uh, something something party and then like this Farmers Association and like it was really wow. wild. Yeah, so... The politics basically in the area and the state were like heavily believed to have an influence on that this case because the people that were super involved in getting it wrapped up so quickly ended up going on to like win re-elections. And then even if they were recalled or lost or whatever, they'd go on to do something even bigger. <laughs> so were there any other suspects that ever came up besides Henry Lair? Now, Sid, when you were reading anything, like the news articles and stuff, did you ever see any other suspects mentioned? No, it was just him. Okay, so me either. (laughs) I, like, couldn't find anything, and I was like, okay, well, if he's the only person mentioned, like, he must have done it. Mm -hmm. So, again, the book gave me a lot more reasonable doubt where if I was on a jury, I don't know if I would have convicted Henry Lair, (laughs) to be honest. Uh, His story, yeah, some things are contradicting. Uh, He would say he was somewhere, saw someone the day of the murders, and then their affidavit statement, like signed statements, they'd swear they did not see him, and their events would match up to another neighbor's, but like, it was just kind of wild. So I was like, okay, that looks like a, a bad sign. But I do have to agree with investigators that I think it would have been very, very difficult for one person to commit this crime. Also, like, back in the day, you know, if someone was coming to your home, 
and you didn't like them, you definitely weren't inviting them in. You were greeting them outside on your property. <laughs> like you weren't, they weren't coming inside your home where he wouldn't have had this opportunity. And then there was a little tidbit I mentioned where no one could identify that shotgun. The hatchet they knew came from Wolf's property. But so according to Henry Lair's confession, it was Jacob Wolf's shotgun that he had taken from him and then was able to like just one by one pick off the family and none of them ran, which was like also wild to me. Like the oldest daughter stayed in the house with the two little ones after her mom was shot. You know what I mean? Like she didn't just like try to get them out, which was wild to me. But anyways, if no one could identify this gun, like, he went hunting with neighbors, you know what I mean? They saw his shotguns. So, like, to me, that's also a red flag because, like, if his that was his gun, they would have known it. So, that kind of makes it seem like it's an outside party. But then also, there's really no other motive except for bad blood to kill the Wolf family. Like, from some said some quartal. You know, they didn't steal money. No one, like, stole money from them and took anything. So, uh, so one neighbor during the inquest to the coroner actually mentioned that there were two suspicious men walking away from the Wolf family farm on Thursday, not long after noon that day. And it was looked into. They later ruled this out. It was family members of a farmer who was north of the Wolf farm. And they had walked into town to try to find odd jobs while staying there. So then there's a couple other neighbors mentioned. Will Brokowski, I think is how you say it, was also on like the top of the investigators list. He was actually Henry's brother-in-law and a really good friend of his who also did not get along with Jacob Wolf. But nothing really ever came of this. Uh, there was also another neighbor too who was the one who, his last name was Mayor, and his daughter was the one that Henry Lair was starting the rumors about Jacob Wolf and his daughter. Both Will and the neighbor Mayor didn't have, like, a solid alibi in the time frame, and nothing really came from that either. And I think 100 years ago, it's really just, like, word of mouth of who you saw and when. So there was a gap in both Will and Mare's stories where someone saw them going in one direction and they wouldn't see them till hours later coming back. So it had potential, but like really nothing ever came from that either. There were also theories on an ex-husband of Beta's. Uh, like literally the police received a tip from like Minnesota on some ex-husband. And then later on realized that it was the wrong wolf family. <laughs> like, she was never married. So, like, this is how their tips went. Oh, my God. Yeah, like, they actually genuinely tried to investigate that tip. It was kind of wild. There was, like, a potentially an escaped convict in the area, but, like, nothing came from that. They never even identified him. Uh, there was someone there who claimed he was an escaped wanted man from Canada, Really, he was, like, served time in Saskatchewan and, like, was free on, like, drug charges or something like that. <laughs> and, like, hopped the border and ended up in North Dakota. Like, it was just kind of wild. Henry Lair maintained his innocence his entire time. Before and after he signed the confession, the only time he ever admitted to these crimes 
was behind closed doors with the investigators, the attorney, and the judge. He even told the warden hours before he died he was an innocent man. He claimed that he knew who what the killer was. It was an unknown man who was who had died in like a state mental hospital in a nearby town. But this was never really investigated by anyone. The investigators obviously blew this off and Henry Lair passed away in prison on March 21st, 1925 due to a blood clot and complications from a heart problem. For many, the case was solved and justice was served, but for others, they felt like this case would really never be solved and truth would never be known now. Just to kind of like the afterword from the book I read, uh, that includes, you know, last everything was based off of newspaper reports, court documents, sworn statements, historical records, and census reports. Uh, he basically said, like, the last two chapters were kind of fiction based off of, like, oh, if potentially another, you know, aspect it went, which at first I really thought it wasn't fiction. <laughs> and then I got to the afterward and was like, okay, so I'm going to delete all my notes. So I didn't include any of that part. <laughs> but there are two important facts in the last two chapters that were true. Henry did claim that a man from an insane asylum committed the murder. He never gave the name. And he had since died before Henry did, and the authorities never took any credence to that tale. The Bismarck Tribune did report on that, and they also reported that the new attorney general's office had claimed that they were doing more, going to make more arrests about a year after. Um, So Henry had already been serving, and they were operating independently from the county authorities, but nothing ever came to that. And I just wanted to include this last part. Basically, it said the answers to these questions and other questions are probably somewhere in the investigative files in the Attorney General's office in Bismarck. But unfortunately, those files were destroyed when the original North Dakota Capitol building burned to the ground on December 28, 1930. So even though those authorities might have had good reason to do more arrests and there that information might not have never been like ever been released some point in time in history they might have had answers but unfortunately it does not exist anymore so those are my fun my my story got anything to add (laughs) wow wow i'm really happy you got more on like the theories and stuff because i do feel like the whole henry layer thing is like yeah you know Maybe he did it. Maybe he didn't. I do believe that there's a lot of people, and this is why I, and we can fight about this another day. I don't know if we've had this discussion before, but listeners out there, why I don't like the death penalty, because I think that there's a handful of people, like, there needs to be more proof in order for it to happen. Like, you yes. have to. And especially in these older cases like this. Yes. And like, there the were older a lot cases, of people that were executed that since have been. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like proven innocent. Yes. Yeah. Been exonerated. Exonerated. Um, thank you. Like, 
there's so many cases definitely back then or like before the technology like advances and whatnot where like they didn't have solid evidence besides like we're gonna threaten you into admitting that you did this and then they're like but I actually didn't you just made me feel like I needed to tell you that so I could go home or like xyz and it really grinds my gears because I genuinely feel sorry for some of these people and it's like you can kind of see that with Henry Lair's story that you know he admitted it but then he's kind of like going back on that when he is changing his story with like the affidavits with the neighbors and stuff but yeah and like everyone I mean like for the investigators they were very very convinced obviously that he had committed this crime I can't necessarily agree I think that there was a lot of doubt and I think the stories that I was finding was like so black and white like he committed the crime he was convicted he or he confessed he was convicted and he died in prison and I don't think that's necessarily the true story and from what I've gathered people in the area still like they know the story obviously even 100 years later and they still don't really agree on if justice was served or not yeah um I do have another thing to add though because this is something that I was really interested in with Emma Wolf being the only survivor I kind of wanted to know what happened to her Ooh, Um, okay cool this was one of my fun facts but I'm glad you're saying it (laughs) so obviously she was found like in this home cold hungry and crying and she's eight nine months old So she went on to become an owner of a farm herself that in today's age would be valued over $385,000, and she died in 2003, but she did stay in that same area, it seemed, um, which I thought was pretty interesting and to follow in the farming that her father and her family had executed as well. Yeah, she, um, I saw that she was originally raised by, like, the neighbors and then eventually Mm -hmm. taken in by... Uh, her mom's sister and her husband I and like married and lived until 2003 yeah the 2003 <laughs> part to me was like wow that's wild but I guess it's not really that long but she was she was 84 <laughs> yes but I saw something about the neighbor too and I thought that was kind of like off or odd I guess that you know usually like family members or I guess your whole family gets like massacred though but you know people fight over keeping their nephew or their niece or their cousin or whatever and like in this case the neighbor just takes her and raises her which yeah so fun fact this is the neighbor that jacob wolf was accused of having an affair with oh my gosh um by henry lair supposedly by all these neighbors um but she was best friends with mrs wolf and she actually would come over weekly uh and help like, if not daily, at least multiple times throughout the week with the kids. So she didn't have any kids of her own and she wasn't married. So she was constantly over, like, helping her with the kids. So I think that's why they immediately took her. Like, when the Kraft family Which, found her, they immediately immediately mm-hmm. took her to them because they were super close. And, like, obviously, Mrs. Wolf's sister eventually would get them. But, like, I can only imagine, I mean, you have to plan a funeral for all these people now you know what I mean like and figure out what to do with the state and like all this stuff so I think it was pretty overwhelming but they did eventually take her in and I'm sure for Emma's entire life she knew that story because everyone in the area knew it 
Oh, for sure. <laughs> for sure. And then it's like, you know, one of those things where are people like looking at you weird or like staring at you like you're yeah. the kid that your parents got killed and all your siblings got killed. Like, it's crazy. It's wild. There's a uh, lot of things that like remind me of the Velisca axe murders in this case. Yes. Which I thought was <laughs> super interesting. Like, because I had never heard of this before, and I was like, just the fact that, like, everyone gets massacred, you know, we, we well, in the Velisca Axe murders, I don't feel like they ever knew who did it, but, like, in this case, we think we know, but, like, at the same time, it might not be that person. It's rather interesting. So, and I think I, <laughs> I told Sydney, <laughs> so everyone else knows, I had picked this case, and then, like, a few weeks, a few days before we were both going to do our research, I was texting her and I'm like, oh, maybe I'm going to change the case. Like, I've heard another podcast or two cover it. And, like, the more I'm doing research, like, it was kind of, like, solved. So I didn't really want to, like, okay, well, if it's so black and white. And then I just, I caught, like, a snippet of, like, him claiming his innocence and denying it and how some people, like, questioned if it was ever solved. And I was like, oh, maybe this is why I added this to the list. Uh, and so I was trying to dig and I finally was able to find that book with some theories. Uh, I think it's really interesting. I agree. I mean, it was definitely not, I've never heard of this. Yeah. But. I mean, I, especially like these old cases we talked about, like where someone is convicted, I don't think it's black and white by any means. And to me, just, like, going over it all, I don't think it's solved. I think there are a lot of questions unanswered. Maybe Henry Henry Lair did commit it, the crime, and he felt awful. True. And he didn't want his family to be shunned, so, which they were. So he tried to, like, maintain his innocence. I don't know. But even his story and his explanation doesn't add up to me. So... No, there's definitely a lot of unanswered questions. They just needed to blame like, put the yeah. blame on somebody for this, because it was such, like, a massacre at the time, you know, they had yeah. to blame it on somebody, but I don't know if they got the right guy here. I don't know either, and I'm glad we did cover it, and I chose to <laughs> pick this case anyways, because I fell down a rabbit hole, I read this whole ass book in, like, three days, which doesn't sound like a lot, but y'all, like, it was not, I could not find it as an audiobook anywhere, so I actually genuinely had Ooh. to read it <laughs> and make notes lot, and then. then go back from my notes and, like, type it up, like, to add it to already the notes I had. It was a lot. I was up till about was, two in the morning a yesterday. Couple of, <laughs> a couple of those days were, like, work days, too, weren't they? Or at least one. Yes. I finished a book yesterday afternoon, but, um, like, I think I started reading it, like, Wednesday night. So, like, yeah. Wednesday and Thursday, I probably spent, you know, an hour each. Like, I at least read a quarter of the book, like, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Oh, my gosh. Because by Thursday, I was halfway through, and I was like, okay, I'm halfway through. I can do this. <laughs> I've come so far. I have to finish it now. <laughs> and it was totally, like, a last minute. Like, I already had typed up a bunch of notes. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to read this book. <laughs> I love it. That's great. Uh, but I'm glad I did. I learned a lot. And like I said, it's historical fiction. I usually don't read that kind of stuff. I'm like either like true crime or Stephen King. <laughs> so uh, it was interesting to read 
a historical fiction piece. But a lot of the information in there, like I said, was verifiable. And um, highly recommend if you're looking. I mean, all the reviews, too, say it was, like, very well-researched. And then the people were, like, from the area were commenting about how accurate it was and stuff like that. So it was just interesting. And that's all I've got. I'm proud very, of myself. Very, very interesting. I'm proud of you, too. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you got some jokes and facts for me or what? I do. What do you so want? I've been rambling. <laughs> you know what? Let's go joke first. Do you know why jokes about chips with cheese on them are the best? Oh, my. They're nacho jokes. <laughs> that is not... I was gonna I was going to guess something, and that was not what I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, because uh, they're cheesy? Like, I don't, I don't oh, know. Oh, that would have been good. <laughs> that would have been good. I would have laughed if you said that one back. <laughs> okay, okay. Hit me with a fact. You know, I, I kept with the nacho theme. So nachos yes. were named after a guy named Nacho. His name Nacho was Ig- <laughs> Dude, stop. That's literally <laughs> when I read this yesterday, I was like, what's his name? What's his name? It's Ignacio Nacho Anaya, who is the inventor of Nachos. What a smart man. Yes, just name it after myself. If I ever snaps, invent something. Snaps to Nacho. <laughs> it'll be uh the Sydney. <laughs> if you guys ever see something on a menu called the Sydney, you know. Sydney Ross <laughs> the Sydney. invented this. <laughs> you know, that's always been one of my um, dreams, dreams is to open a, a restaurant, but I can't tell these people about it because they will all come because it's a uh, true crime themed. But I don't want anyone to steal my ideas yet. But I have a whole like section in my notes of um, like sandwich names and like burger names and stuff. I'll have to name some off to you after. <laughs> Yeah, I'm so down because I used to always want the same thing, but I said it would be, like, rock and roll in true crime mm, themed. That would be fun. That would be fun. So I had some good, uh... I should have to find a location because I was kind of ain't the place. I mean, Ohio has some weird places. <laughs> yeah, like, the I tagged you in the Ohio place. The I want to go there oh. so bad, that restaurant that has, like, the whole menu is based off of horror movies. And they play yes. horror movies in the background all day. It's so cool. I feel yeah. like it's just all about, like, the location for things like that. Like, I mean, Ohio is a weird place. But I feel like something like that, depending on where you're at, like, if it's in, like, a random small town in Ohio, it might not survive. But if it's in, like, Cleveland or, like, a bigger city, it'll probably survive. So, like, for yeah. me... I'm like, I can't do this. And it's like, all about marketing, too. Yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll get together on this. Maybe this is an idea coming soon. I, I, I think it should be. <laughs> <laughs> I'm down. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I'm so excited to discuss now. <laughs> well, everyone, um, today we're recording the morning or early afternoon before the Super Bowl. So I hope you all had, if you watch sports... <laughs> Um, go team go. <laughs> yeah, I hope your team won. Uh, I won't tell you who I'm voting rooting for because, like, I don't really know. 
I just um, like the boys in the pants. <laughs> I'm rooting for Snoop Dogg and Eminem, actually. <laughs> Plot twist. Yeah, hopefully you all enjoy the halftime show. Uh, I'm actually gonna... just really excited to see, like, two teams who haven't been to the Super Bowl and, like, two quarterbacks who haven't been. Uh, and I think it'll be a really good game. I'm really so excited for the wardrobe malfunction. <laughs> <laughs> that and I then, heard are happening. Oh my gosh. And then tomorrow is Valentine's Day, but it would be yesterday when this episode comes out. So I hope everyone had a wonderful Valentine's Day, whether you are single or alone. I've taken myself out on plenty of single Valentine's Days. So a stupid Cupid date. I will be getting a heart-shaped pizza and not leaving Ooh. my house. Same. Same. <laughs> he was literally like, uh, do you want to, like, go to dinner or anything? I was like, no. It's going to be so busy. I'm good. <laughs> a heart-shaped pizza sounds bomb. I saw Chick-fil-A has, like, heart-shaped. Well, the nuggets aren't heart-shaped, but they're in a container that are heart-shaped. And you can just get a bunch of nuggets in a heart-shaped container. Oh, my God. Oh, Maybe like, I'll wow. do that for lunch tomorrow. You can get like so you can get chicken minis or because I can like, fucking DoorDash Chick Fil A now. Oh, I know my life is complete. I've only done it once, but <laughs> I think you said it's it was a big deal. It was far, wasn't it? Uh, it's like a t- 15, 20 minute drive. Oh, I guess and that's usually, not that bad. And usually in drive-through, like I mean, you sit in the drive-through for a while. Even now, that place has been open for a couple years. That location, but it's just. I mean, I'm going to sit in that drive-thru for, like, 45 minutes to an hour during lunch rush. That's so, true. it does take, like, the estimated time every time is, like, 65 to, like, 85 minutes. So, I got to order it when I'm not that hungry yet. <laughs> so, then by the time it comes, you're starving. I'm hungry, like... yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, if you guys see any other heart-shaped ideas, uh, let us know so I know what to check out next year. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, and I hope everyone enjoys their Taco Tuesday. I don't know. I don't have anything else. <laughs> you can find us on Facebook <laughs> at Tacos and Tequila Podcast. On Instagram, it's just Tacos and Tequila. We have a website, which is tacosandtequilapodcast.com. And if you are listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, you should leave us a rating or review on there. It helps us get noticed. It helps us feel better about ourselves. And it's just kind of cool to read. Very true. Very true. Oh, maybe I'll give you guys a TikTok again soon, too. Man, (laughs) I always be telling myself I'm going to make these TikToks. And as soon as I start, I get pissed off and I stop. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I made the one that I sent you. I just haven't posted it yet. So maybe I'll share that. Post it. Post it. Maybe I'll share it for everyone. (laughs) Post it. Coming soon. (laughs) Keep an eye on our TikTok page, which I don't know what the name is, but we will share it on Instagram. (laughs) Yes. Yes. All right, well, that's all I got. Anything else to add before I just go on more rants? <laughs> nope, nothing else. No more rants here. Until next time, guys. Yeah, we'll talk to you next week then. Bye. Bye.
Ha 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 ha!